Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Gender Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. My name is Patricia martins Marcos, and today we are speaking with Professor Jessica Hinchy about her new book, Governing Gender and Sexuality in Colonial Hindi- India, the Hijra from about 1850 to 1900. 1900. The book was published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Um, This is a book that, uh, for the first time, has rendered in a monograph format the history of the Hijra community in colonial India. And so that alone would be reason enough for the book to garner a great deal uh, of attention, I think. But in addition to that is also a very methodologically rich book, uh, seen as it adopts various approaches to the source material, depending very much on the nature of that exact uh, source material at hand. Overall, I think this is a book that will spark a great deal of interest in scholars of gender and sexuality, of course, queer studies, British colonialism, but also well beyond British, the case of British colonialism. And... Um, Based on the breadth and depth of the ground covered in the book alone, I think it will also spark a lot of interest in scholars uh, interested in understanding the role of archives. There's also interesting discussions on archives and on pushing back against the narratives of the omnipotent colonial state um, with the ultimate aim of achieving more nuanced accounts of understanding Uh, the effects of archival form and practices in the surveillance of bodies, the pathologization of sexuality and uh, of intimacy and intimate relationships. So, Jessica, welcome to the New Books Network, and uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you also for such a, you know, a fantastic and kind introduction to my book, too. So um, as, uh, as it's usual for the channel, the first question always focuses on you, and namely, um, we'd like to know more about your background and how you arrived at this particular, not only just the field of study, but actually the topic of research of the hijra. Right. So I was a history street student. You know, I, I loved history from a very young age, sort of that, you know, can't really account for why in a way. And I came to South Asian studies really um, through reading Indian literature in English Um, and, you know, during my university became really interested in particularly the history of colonialism in South Asia um, and the gendered and sexual aspects of colonialism. So I began my PhD in 2009 um, at the Australian National University in Canberra and this point in 2009 was in the months leading up to um, a very important court case, uh, the reading down of Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code by the Delhi High Court. And so this law, Section 377, prohibited um, sex against the order of nature, um, primarily same-sex sexual activities, but also a broader range of non-normative sexual acts. And so there was a lot of media coverage 
about this court case, but also more broadly about the LGBT movement in India and the colonial regulation of sexuality. And so originally I was intending to write a thesis on the colonial regulation of sexuality in India and its various post-colonial effects. Um, And doing the research for that, I came across quite a number of activist accounts and also legal studies research, which mentioned the colonial criminalization of the Hijra community very briefly. So these works were, you know, stating that so-called eunuchs, which was the colonial term for the Hijra community, were registered under the second part of the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, and that they were banned from performance and feminine dress. And so the Hijra community um, are a discipleship-based community, and they have traditionally had a role performing um, and collecting badhai or congratulatory gifts at the times of births and weddings, but also just more generally in, in public spaces too. And so this led me to this incredibly rich anthropological and linguistic literature on the Hydra community, um, Gayatri Reddy's work in particular. Um, but I found that despite this really rich literature on the Hydra community today, particularly coming out of anthropology as well as linguistics and also theatre studies, there was so little written about the historical criminalization of the Hydra community in the colonial period and in particular about this law, the second part of the 1871 Criminal Tribes Act under which eunuchs were criminalized. And that's that became the subject of this book. Um, so it sort of began as me trying to figure out like a why this had not this history had not been written. Um, but also um, why trying to figure out like why did the Hydra community experience this sort of intensified criminalization under colonial rule? Um, Part of that sort of why has nothing been written that was so perplexing was there's this massive literature on part one of the Criminal Tribes Act, which um, maybe we can talk more about later, but this was this project to criminalise groups known as criminal tribes. Um, and they were generally socially marginal groups who the British thought were hereditary criminals by caste occupation. Um, but historians of this criminal tribes project had not had not explored why the second part of this act was specifically for the registration of so-called eunuchs, by which the British largely meant the hetero community. And so at first, as I said, I envisaged this um, as a thesis on the colonial regulation of sexuality and the criminalization of hydras would be one chapter um, as a part of that. But I found that there was a much richer archive on the anti-Hydra campaign than on other aspects of colonial regulation of sexuality. And I also found that the anti-Hydra campaign was in some ways a much more complex colonial project in that it was about non-normative gender expression and sexuality, but it also revealed a much wider set of colonial anxieties and preoccupations. And I also found that I could track the everyday lives of the Hydra community under colonial criminalization in quite amount, an amount of detail in a way that 
other aspects of colonial regulation of gender expression and sexuality, you know, um, didn't allow. Uh, great. That's um, it's so interesting to see that trajectory uh, that you just uh, mentioned. And I was I was wondering how was the experience of moving from 2009, going through all those iterations, but eventually from the dissertation itself to the book manuscript, how was that process? How how much did it change overall? It changed enormously. Um, it was a real process. Um, the thesis to book, um, you know, uh, pathway, I think is something that um, I know from other people who have experienced it too, is it has many wines and uh, works differently for different people. For me, I had to restructure the entire book, um, oh, the entire thesis rather, and I did that several times. Um, so the final structure of the book really took me a decade to get to. Partly that was because the thesis itself, for anybody who's read it would know it has two parts. And actually, the second and larger part was on the criminalization of the Hydra community. The first part was actually on um, colonial interactions with the Kwajasara, who were eunuch slaves, um, who worked in um, Indian um, polities, but also elite households. And so partly because I decided that the larger part, second part of the thesis was where the book was, I really needed to completely restructure that. And I think this is a broader um, issue that historians face where you have sort of this pull towards a chronological narrative, but also the issue of or the need to sort of articulate an argument through thematic and conceptual sort of structures and how do you bring together that chronological narrative with that thematical conceptual structure and that was very very difficult and so it did end up being a three-part book with I don't know nine or eleven chapters or something like that. Oh yeah and um, yeah I know I know all too well the the problems of structuring and chronothematic structures. Um, so um, you sort of I was wondering how you've already mentioned eunuchs and hijra and other communities and non-binary conforming communities. And I was wondering how it was for you to, to work with these categories in the archive historically and from a conceptual point of view as well in terms of what kinds of considerations did you have? Because these can be quite loaded terms and um, they, they, they're contingent as well, uh, historically. So how was that? How was that experience? So it was a, um, it was a difficult one, um, in part because I, you know, I'm aware that the term eunuch is, um, is offensive to a lot of Hydra and also more broadly um, trans-identified people in India today. And it was certainly used in highly derisive ways in the colonial archive, but also in the um, North Indian newspapers as well that, you know, more elite or middle-class identified Indian men were writing about hijras at this time. So it is such a loaded and derogatory term. It also misgenders the hijra community um, in that that English term eunuch does suggest um, masculinity when, of course, the hijra community um, embodied femininity. And so 
dealing with that was really fraught. Another layer to that was that the way that the term Hydra is used in colonial archives is itself a colonial category. So I couldn't, even though that term is used, um, it wasn't a sort of um, simple thing to say, okay, in this context, the term Hydra is used, therefore these people definitely identify as such. Because really, from the British point of view, the term eunuch and Hydra were often equated and they usually meant the same thing to them. So that was a second layer of complexity. A third was that, as you mentioned, there were um, a broad range of people and groups who did not fit within a binary understanding of gender, who ended up being classified as eunuch. And so one of those groups was um, the Zanana, who were male-born, or assigned male at birth, I guess, um, and they contextually performed femininity. They weren't, however, um, usually castrated. And I will say many Hydras were also not necessarily castrated. It's clear in the, the colonial records even that, you know, castration was not necessarily for initiation into the Hydra community. But in any case, this Zanana community then raises this question, are they Hydra? Can we define them as eunuch? Um, and then there's also performers who, male performers who performed um female roles in various theatrical contexts. You also have some groups who were um, men who cross-dressed in ritual contexts. And so all of these people can drift in and out of the, the unit category, and it's often not entirely clear who is being described with that term. So the way I dealt with that was when there is a description of a discipleship lineage, I can pretty safely say that we're talking about people who identified as Hydra in this context, but that's always a tentative sort of um, identification of those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very that i i was just reading through it and wondering how you navigated all those issues because it seemed to be so fraught with with complications all throughout it um so sort of delving delving into into the book um more specifically and into part 1 um solving the eunuch problem um so th this it includes four chapters and we'll, we'll sort of cover um some main topics that sparked my attention uh we're at our we're at my grace, the grace of my, um, and, um, so this, uh, this first part ranges, it covers a period that ranges roughly between 1850 and 1870, and it covers a few important laws. So the first is section 377 of the 1860 Indian Penal Code, which prohibits non-reproductive sex, um, which was defined as a natural until 2018. So, quite quite a long legacy there. And the second uh, is the law from 1865, which passed in the northwestern provinces of India uh, with the goal of reducing the number of eunuchs um, and which explicitly had the explicit goal of extricating and ultimately extinguishing all hijras from um, Indian society. So th this section, a lot of it is framed around the idea of colonial panic uh, colonial panics um, and um, Hijra performing gender nonconformity, if you will. 
within that framework. So I think it would be perhaps useful for listeners to hear you speak more about this idea of the colonial panics, because it seems to set up quite a lot of the of the material, and especially um, how the hijra become conceptualized by colonial bureaucracy and administrators as a problem population, an ungovernable problem population, uh, even a population that is later on um, in a subsequent chapter identified with metaphors of dirt and disease. Mm. Okay, yeah. So, this this first part of the book, as you said, is really plotting out why do the British, particularly in North India, view the Hydra population as being a problem? To what extent does that resonate with um, a, particularly middle class Indian sort of gender and sexual politics? And then how does the colonial state try to in inverted commas, solve this problem. Um, so in terms of anxiety, I think the anti-Hydra campaign really highlights just how anxious the colonial bureaucracy was. Um, and so I analyse in the first main chapter of the book um, this sort of cycle of repeated discovery and denunciation of the Hydra community um, which allows the colonial state to position itself as a defender of public morals, but also highlights the limits of colonial power, right? So the British from the 1850s in northern India um, repeatedly sort of, there's a series of court cases, and out of those court cases, they identify the Hydra community as being criminal and also sexually immoral. And so this repeated rediscovery also continually highlights that colonial rule has not yet solved this moral problem. And so you do have this intensified panic between the 1850s and really the beginning of the 1870s. And I situate this within broader patterns of um, how colonial panics played out. Um, there's a, there is a pretty significant literature on colonial panics, and so I'm, I'm drawing on some of that work um, by people like Kim Wagner, you know, um, and uh, also um, a few other, um, you know, um, historians as well, Stoller, for instance. And so what I show is that this, this Hydra panic does reveal several broader patterns, right? Um, these panics are about perceived threats to colonial authority. They have this cyclical, sort of highly repetitive pattern to them. But I argue that it is distinct in a few ways. So first of all, it wasn't the newspapers or the the, the press that really drove this panic. This was something that was uh, really playing out within colonial bureaucratic circles. And so like the English language colonial newspapers were not really a part of this. And that that's quite different from how moral panics more generally have been understood, right, that the media is important. So that's a significant point, I think, of departure. Um, it also really highlights, of course, just how central issues of gender and sexuality were to the colonial state. And it reveals how concepts of a governable colonial population were um, really enmeshed, right, it, with gender and sexual disorder or perceived gender and, gender and sexual disorder. So I go on in the second um, chapter of the book 
to tease this out. So how did gender and sexual disorder, as perceived by the colonial state, signal political disorder and why? And in that second chapter, I show how there was really this like very intermeshed um, intersection of various colonial anxieties and preoccupations in the so-called eunuch problem. So obviously, I mean, as we've sort of already highlighted, gender embodiment is a key issue for the British. They see the Hydra community as unclassifiable, illegible in terms of their gender. Um, they also link Hydra's feminine gender um, expression to their perceived sexual immorality. And so I explore how there is this emerging colonial sort of sexual pathology of the cross-dressing effeminate so-called sodomite, which is really coalescing around this figure of the Hydra. And I talk about how that resonates with things that are going on in Britain at this time and shows this sort of simultaneousness of colonial and metropolitan sexual pathologies. But beyond that, there's also concerns with the cleanliness and the order of public space. So the British view the Hydra community as um, being disorderly in their behaviour in public space, as polluting public space in various ways, and as being obscene. So the visibility of Hydras in and of itself is a problem, right, from the British perspective. I also show how there's concerns with mobility. Um, the Hydra community was not a um, itinerant community on the whole, but the British are really linking criminality and mobility in this period, and they view peripatetic peoples, anybody who they can't really figure out exactly where they live and, you know, ascertain they are fully sedentary, um, they do increasingly associate with criminality. There's also concerns interlinked with that with, illicit commerce across borders. And so the British come to view the Hydra as a kidnapper of children. And so it intersects with these concerns with um, kid, so-called kidnapping, um, the, you know, uncontrolled movement of people and commerce in people, but also this sort of child-saving rhetoric that then gets caught up in that. So there's this stereotype of the Hydra as not only a kidnapper of children, but also castrator and um, uh, and a pimp of, of male children. And so then this colonial child-saving rhetoric comes into this, this, this panic. And so in the second chapter, I sort of trace out and contextualise each of those strands of the, the um, so-called eunuch problem and do that in order to show how gender and sexuality are coming together with concerns about public space, with, um, you know, economic uh, activities, with um, mobility to sort of reveal how the British viewed a governable population. Yeah, I thought though that part in particular was so interesting. And I really loved that chapter for that because it really, it explored the the eunuch problem not as a problem of knowledge which is something you also talk about but as a w with a spatial dimension it's a problem with a very spatial dimension and um ultimately there's this tension between um well their visibility their public visibility on the one hand there's also the problem of of preventing that visibility and 
And and then uh, uh, through quarantining and all of that, and I, I was teaching a class in the history of public health and made me think a lot about that and all of those dynamics we were talking about, like who's a, path, a pathological element on, in, the, on, in the public. Um, and uh, ultimately, I also thought it was very interesting to discuss sort of the counterpart to, the, to that narrative, which is what are the idealized features of this, this um, chimeric, uh, desirable colonial population? Um, what, does, <laughs> what does it entail to be a desirable colonial subject? And I was in particularly struck um, by a lot of the overlaps that these a lot of these characteristics or if these anxieties had with, I work on 18th century uh, Portuguese colonialism and a lot of these categories and a lot of these anxieties were shared. And I was very struck by that, um, by, by that very dynamic. Um, so if you could discuss a little bit more of this uh, spatial public dimension um, a little bit and how actually they come to be policed, because that seems to be sort of the end of the arc in this first section of the book is the policing of hijras and how that possibility is opened and um, for not only criminalization, but ultimately the means to deploy the means of their elimination. Mm, yeah. So... Just and just quickly before, I mean, the visibility aspect of this is, I think, so central. And indeed, like how a governable population is envisaged is always so spatial, right, in the colonial imagination. Um, and I think this visibility aspect is also, it is quite an issue too for the middle class Indian commentators in the press and also in correspondence with the colonial government. But interestingly, from the middle class Indian perspective in this period in the mid-19th century, it is actually the um, panic around slavery and castration of male children is much stronger, actually, than some of these aspects of the visibility of um, so-called immoral gender and sexuality in public space. And so I do sort of explore a little bit about why that is in the context of middle-class gender and sexual politics at this time. But one, in terms of how then does the colonial government set about policing the, the Hydra community, um, interestingly, a lot of the commentators in the North Indian press and, you know, middle-class Indian men writing to the government, they argued for banishment. So they are arguing for a spatial sort of project there, um, you know, the exile of the Hydra community or their isolation. But the colonial government never attempts to um, spatially sort of quarantine the Hydra community. Um, instead, they decide to bring about their elimination. And this is incredibly explicit. Um, they use terms like extermination, extirpation, um, extinction. And the idea is this will be sort of, um, I mean, I see it as a two-pronged sort of project, right? There's physical elimination as part of this, and they aim to bring about the elimination of the Hydra through registration, which because the British define castration as essential to hydrahood most of the time, they therefore see the prevention of castration through intensified policing as a way to um, stop the reproduction of the community. This is a misunderstanding of hydra, hydra initiation, but um, 
That's part of the project. Also, the removal of children from Hydra households. There were not many children um, living in Hydra households or with other people who were defined as eunuchs at this time, about 60 or 70, um, it seems to be. And uh, despite that very small number of people under the age of 16 in Hydra households, there's this project to, to forcibly remove those children, some of whom were actually not initiates into the Hydra community, but adopted children or the children of musicians who actually lived with Hydras. So there's this child removal project aiming at physical elimination. Um, but And there's also interference with, you know, the inheritance and succession practices of the Hydra community for the same reason. But there's also this cultural elimination aspect, and this is once again where the visibility and spatial aspects come in again. And this is really a project to um, erase Hydras as a visible public presence, and they do that through the prohibition of um, feminine dress and also ornaments um, and the prohibition of performance practices, so um, playing music and um, and dancing in particular. Um, so this in the, in this part of the book, I also do situate this elimination project in broader context of British colonialism in both settler and non-settler contexts. And, you know, there's a large literature um, which has shown that, as Patrick Wolfe has called it, a logic of elimination underlay settler colonialism. But this literature has suggested that in colonies of exploitation, um, like British India, such elimination projects were less common because the imperative was to extract the labour of Indigenous peoples, whether that be directly or through revenue raising on agrarian produce and so on. And so, the you know, the, the premise of that argument, which I think does generally hold, is that these elimination projects were quite unusual in non-settler colonial contexts. And so I sort of tease out there why then um, the Hydra project was one of elimination. And I argue that there's several reasons, but just in brief, that this a lot of this has to do with colonial understandings of the gender um, and sexual embodiment of the Hydra community. The idea that people who are castrated are not morally plastic, they are incapable of moral transformation. The difficulty of any sort of labour regime that the colonial state might impose because of an understanding of hydrogender, um, this idea that they are physically incapable of hard work, but also we can't give them women's work because that's confusing the, the classification of them as men by the colonial state. Um, and I think also just a fair amount of colonial hubris as well, that this idea that, as always, yes, this idea that the colonial state might actually be able to completely eliminate a community they see as sexually and and, um, and gender, you know, well, sexually immoral and also immoral in terms of their gender embodiment. Um, so it reinforces some pretty, you know, inflated views of the colonial state. Yeah, I, all throughout it, I kept thinking about um, their views on heredity and Darwinism and 
polygenism, how, how all these ideas about human difference who are also consummated somatically on bodies, uh, how they might have intervened in that. Because this is a time of, of physical anthropology and of measuring bodies and substantiating difference on, on, on bodies and thinking very much in terms of fixity. Um, it was really, I, I thought it made me really uh, ask questions uh, about, about that. But um, as uh, moving on, as you spoke, you, sp you actually spoke about registration and we were speaking about policing. I was wondering if, if um, it, that actually dovetails quite well with part two, which is on archives and archival legibility. Um, and I think here you explore what you call multiple narratives of hijrahood. And this is sort of a rejoinder to the work of uh, Anne Stoller and Anjali Arondakar, for example. Um, so but this is a section that discusses, um, that focuses a lot on archives and plural narratives and uh, the value, explores the value of microhistory in uh, pushing against what you call the collectivizing tendency of colonial archives um, by revealing these plural accounts of hi hijrahood. Um, so how, I was wondering how did, if you could speak more about how did these archives help you arrive at a more nuanced image of hijra life and how that life was in, in, as in, in paint a much more complex, layered and nuanced portrait of, of the hijra experience in, in colonial India. So I have to say, when I began this project, I originally sort of despaired of being able to say anything much about everyday life of, of people who were classified as eunuchs and particularly the hijra community. Um, and that was because a lot of the um, the archival materials that did circulate either to the sort of, you know, the headquarters of British India or to London were these, you know, highly criminalizing accounts they um, and, and much more uniform, right? And also once I got into um, looking at some of the um, North Indian newspapers as well, um, I found, A, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion, but also they seemed to be these stereotyped accounts once again. And so originally I thought I could say very little, but as I sort of looked at these archives much more and also after I went to um, some of the more provincial archives, so in particular the Uttar Pradesh State Archives in Allahabad, um, which is not the main branch of that state archives, um, and it's a you know, very, very small archive. But there I found um, original registers of so-called eunuchs, um, which were composed in 1865 before there was actually a law for the registration of eunuchs, so-called, um, as well as in 1871 to 1873 after this Criminal Tribes Act Part Two was passed. And so these um, registers, police registers, they were often formulaic, but many of them didn't follow the formula. And when they didn't follow this prescribed sort of standard for how you should classify and, and record the lives of these people, you get fragments um, that really don't fit within either these broader colonial sort of stereotypical narratives or, you know, the sort of Indian middle class um, descriptions either. And so 
I started to foreground those things that didn't seem to quite fit um, and to really tease them out. And, you know, and so hence in that Hydra Life um, Histories chapter, I tried to um, really foreground individuals' life stories to the extent that I can um, in order to highlight a more complex picture. So in that chapter, I talk about four main themes. Um, probably don't have time to go into each of them today, but I, I look at um, forms of Hydra work and I show that though the collection of Badhai or congratulatory gifts and performance practices were absolutely central to um, the Hydra community, we also get traces of other forms of work that they performed and in particular agricultural work, which didn't fit within you know, the colonial view of these people as being economically unproductive, right? Um, and also sort of is it jarring with the contemporary anthropology of the community as well? So I explore that. I also explore what it tells us about the discipleship structures of the um, of the community. I draw on Indrani Chatterjee's notion of monastic governmentality to think about how the Hydra community was positioned within broader structures of monastic governance. These were communities based on discipleship um, structures or relationships. And I also explore how those discipleship relationships were interlinked with enslavement in certain contexts, um, including in the in the Hydra community. Now, this is not to say that um, all 19th century Hydras were enslaved. That is certainly not the case. But we do have enough evidence to suggest that um, that in some cases, discipleship relationships were also, had at least originated in a condition of enslavement. Um, and I talk I try to unpack that. I also position it within, you know, the place of slavery within these uh, monastic or discipleship structured communities more broadly. So, yes, in this part of the book, I am sort of interested in our approach to um, colonial archives broadly. Um, and I do think that, I, I mean, I really draw on Stoller's work and Arondica's work. I found both of their work just so essential for thinking about the complexities of the colonial archive. And also, you know, as Stoller has put it, thinking about the form of the archive, not just its contents. It's so essential. Um, at the same time, I do um, depart from Arondica's approach in some respects, um, because my analysis of colonial archives have shown, as you said, just the multiplicity of um, often conflicting and contradictory narratives about the Hydra community. And her primary argument is that there is this sort of everywhere, nowhere model of colonial sexuality, uh, oh, sorry, of sexuality in the colonial archives, where the absence of deviant sexuality is evidence for the colonizers of its abundance, right? So this really contradictory sort of paradoxical uh, narrative, and I, certainly you see that often in descriptions of the Hydra community. We don't know how many of them are, there are, but clearly their numbers are increasing and sodomy is spreading. Like this, this is often a narrative. But my point is it's not the only one. And particularly when we look at these Hydra life stories, we see other narratives that really pressed against that sort of dominant colonial narrative. 
Yeah, it was so interesting to get to push back a, a little bit on uh, what she also calls sort of the, the the issue of recovery and of getting things out of the archive, whilst at the same time you you do have sort of a commitment to to build or try to rebuild and reconstruct a lived experience. Um, the, I, I really enjoyed that tension in your work and how you explicitly engaged with that with that tension. I thought that was really was really interesting. So uh, moving to the to the last part uh, of the book, to part three, it, that that part focuses more on surviving criminalization and elimination. Um, and um, here, I thought the discussion on the problem of legible bodies was particularly interesting. And the shift in classifying the hijra as castrate to impotent uh, in the aftermath of the 1871 Crimal, uh, Criminal Tribal, Tribes, Tribes Act. Um, so, uh, and here you take another methodological shift. You adopt more of an anthropological uh, approach uh, to this material, which again, I think it's very interesting just to see the multiplicity of approaches and solutions you had to come up with to, to deal with all the material you had and the, the different types of sources you were dealing with. Um, so um, in, in this section, I, I, yeah, I'd like you to discuss more this notion uh, of the legible body and actually the tension of legible bodies uh, with um, how bodies were read to determine and predict criminality in, in some cases, and the persistent classificatory confusions that pervaded all throughout this period up until sort of the end of this moment. And um, if you can, sort of what were the causes of these classificatory confusions? Okay. Yeah, so... Um yeah, I actually really like this chapter as well. It's sort of a weird thing to say about your own work, but I, I really enjoyed writing this and rewriting this chapter. Um, and in this chapter, I'm talking about efforts to make the bodies of so-called eunuchs legible once it comes to the actual enforcement of the the Criminal Tribes Act um, against this uh, against this category. So here I am um, drawing on, of course, a broader literature that has looked at efforts of the state to make populations legible, and in particular, the work of Clara Anderson on legible bodies. Um, that was a title of her book, which is about criminal um, criminal legal systems, I guess, and and these issues of legibility. But what this particular um, case shows is just how illegible the the bodies of people who were classified as eunuchs were. And so there's sort of this two-fold problem for the colonial state. On the one hand, there's this effort to figure out, okay, how does the Hydra community relate to other groups in Indian society, which from the colonial perspective were sexually immoral or did not adhere to a sort of binary understanding of gender, right? So there's this sort of problem of sexual geographies or ethnographies of Indian society. The second problem is how can we actually make these people's bodies legible and then subject to classification? So that leads the, this effort to figure out, okay, what bodily characteristics could we use to figure out who's criminal, who's not, who's immoral, who's not? And the first answer of the colonial state is um, much more about gendered embodiment and also labour. So the 
act of dressing, being what is perceived as a man who dresses as um, a woman and performing in public space will identify not only who is a eunuch, um, but also who is reasonably suspected of kidnapping, castration or sodomy. And this was under the Act, the definition of who should be registered as a eunuch. So, you know, within the Act, there is this notion of the eunuch as a kidnapper, a castrator, and a sodomite, so-called. But um, there's also then this question, as you raised, of who is impotent, because the Act actually defines a eunuch as quote, an impotent man. Um, And the reason why that is, is to try to encompass the broader range of groups that had, you know, diverse gender expressions that we talked about earlier, right, and particularly the Zanana community. And so um, the body sort of, and this sort of very gendered and um, I guess performative understanding of the body perhaps unsurprisingly, fails to figure out from the colonial state's perspective who can be classified firstly as a eunuch and secondly as reasonably suspected of kidnapping, castration or sodomy. But the colonial state really resists incorporating medical knowledge into this project. Um, There was suggestions that maybe figuring out who was a sodomite, I'm using scare quotes there, um, could be done by colonial physicians. And, of course, there is a medical literature which colonial physicians in India are partaking in, which is looking at how can we read the so-called signs of the sodomite from their bodies. And so there are suggestions maybe we can use medical knowledge to figure out who can be reasonably suspected of sodomy. But that's rejected by the provincial administration. They do, however, eventually bring in um, uh, medical knowledge in order to figure out who can be defined as impotent. Um, It's not really clear what they mean by impotent, Mm -hmm. I have to say. This was a real struggle for me during the PhD, was Mm -hmm. figuring out what on earth are they talking about? (laughs) What do they mean by impotent? Um, Because... And and so what they mean by impotent, I think, is very much shaped by 19th century um, sort of Victorian understandings of impotence, which increasingly were linking male impotence to uh, perceived sexual deviance. Um, right. And mm-hmm. so there's this effort to bring doctors and, and perhaps non-reproductive sex. Yes. Yeah. I think it, I think generally, I mean, non-reproductive sex is also how they define sexual deviance in, in many ways too. Right. Um, so doctors are included then in this project about 10 years after, uh, so from the 1880s. Um, but there's these continuing doubts about the authority of medical knowledge, um, Officials at the district level are often trying to um, reject the conclusions of doctors. And so I argue that there isn't a medicalization of the policing of the Hydra community over time. Um, and so to get to your point about this classificatory confusion, I mean, it's all per- pervasive. And I think this is certainly comes through in the anti-Hydra campaign really strongly. But really, classificatory confusion is just what colonialism is is right (laughs) this sort of effort to know a colonial population but to also maintain distance from it um 
and to come up with these categories that can be workable and legible and sort of monolithic but are clearly not fitting local so, so, uh, social circumstances. I mean, in many contexts, historians have shown that this is the case. I mean, I think what I'm interested in as a part of that is how do people float in and out of these categories? And float is not the right word in a way because um, they also try to contest these categories um, largely unsuccessfully in this case. Um, there's many petitions that are sent to the government by people who are saying either I'm not a unit or um, I am not or I should be able to, um, you know, perform in public or whatever it is, trying to contest the law in some way, they're, they're generally rejected. Um, and so people are pushing against these class, classificatory um, attempts, you know, over and over and over again. And these classifications just are continuing to not encapsulate the complexities of social relationships and affiliations. Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, I, I I thought those. Uh, I, I love that that formulation. That classificatory confusion is what colonial colonialism is. It's it really is true. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was wondering just to sort of to close off a little bit, to, to, if you could if you could discuss a little bit of chapter nine, just in order just to get some resolution, perhaps, and to understand. Um, sort of the limits of the reform project. You've already alluded before um, to to the sort of this mix of child separation policy and the policing of adult hijras as the as part and parcel or, or the central elements of the extermination policy. Um, but but why did it actually fail it towards the end? Why did these efforts uh, of elimination fail? Right. Okay. So yeah, as you say, this is um, a project that is sort of in some ways bifurcated um, towards adults and then children. And the adult project is one of elimination. Um, there is no attempt to reform the eunuch, so-called. Um, the child project and this project of child removal is framed as one of reform, that they will be saved from a life of vice, is the term often used. And um, that they will be educated and either return to their parents or to responsible native guardians. I'm using scare quotes. Um, so, but this, and, you know, certainly child removal is, I mean, successful in the, um, in the sense that it seems that the vast majority of um particularly male children, but also actually female children under the age of 16 were removed from Hydra households. And actually that included, as I mentioned before, not just Hydra disciples, like also people who were um, kids who had been adopted by Hydras um, who were not intended to join the community and also the offspring of, of musicians who lived with them too. Um, and so that's successful in that respect. Um, but at the same time, the project to police adult um, members of the Hydra community, it's highly uneven in its implementation. And I detail how, the, you know, the multiple ways in which Hydras were evading the police, were certainly breaking the law, but also just adopting a whole range of survival and coping strategies. So, you know, I look at how the collection of Badhai or 
so-called begging, which was not illegal under the Act. It's really this vital way in which um, hijras not only maintain sources of livelihood, but I think more importantly also perhaps um, maintain a sort of presence within um, public space and, you know, a cultural identity. And so given all of these um, strategies of evasion and survival, um, the Hydra community and also other people classified as eunuchs were really shaping the pattern of law enforcement. Um, and because of this, you know, highly sort of fragmented um, policing structure and the ways it's contested, um, the Hydra community manages to evade colonial law in a number of ways. Now, I don't want to oversell that. You know, it had this law had massive impacts upon um, communities and people who were classified um, and registered under it. But nevertheless, the the cultural category uh, and the social role of the Hydra community has far too much social meaning to be simply erased by colonial law. Um, and so even though it does seem like children are increasingly removed from the community, of course there's also adult um, initiates into the community. Um, it's clear that discipleship structures do continue um, by and large. Um, and simply I think the answer to why the colonial state did not erase or eliminate the Hydra community is because Hydras became really adept at, um, you know, I guess avoiding the gaze of the colonial state, of, you know, of not being visible to the colonial state. And so just to finish that off too, I mean, when in 1911 a new Criminal Tribes Act is passed and it no longer includes the provisions that were targeting so-called eunuchs. And the reason is that the colonial government thought that eunuchs had died out. They thought there were only about 200 left, and they were very, very confident that the um, extinction of so-called eunuchs was imminent. Uh, but clearly, just, the, you know, the, the community had managed to not be classified as eunuchs by the state so that that population decreases, right? Um, and so then it's declared a success. Now, in fact, to just bring this up to the present really, really briefly, um, of course, the law that I'm looking at in this um, book, Part 2 of the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, was not the only legal instrument that the colonial state had to regulate the Hydra community. And I talk in other parts of the book about how public nuisance laws, obscenity laws, which were under the penal code, and a broader and uh, several other laws were used to both police the Hydra community, but also to legitimise um, what amounted to police harassment. And so even though this particular law is repealed in 1911, there are other legal mechanisms for the criminalisation of the Hydra community. And there are also, it's clear that the policing of this community goes on. It just becomes less archivally visible. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. And um remarkable the the sort of the legacies of these laws as well up to the present moment um so um jessica i think i've we've stolen a little, enough of your time today uh but i was wondering if there's something else that we didn't discuss that you'd like to cover or address 
Um, and what else are you working on at this moment? Sure. I mean, just really briefly, in, in the postscript of the book, and we probably don't have time to go into this um, today, but I look at what are the post-colonial echoes of um, this colonial project. And, you know, some of those echoes are incredibly strong, um, both in terms of, for instance, police acts at the state level in India today that some of which actually include provisions borrowed from the 1871 Criminal Tribes Act. So this this law has sort of, you know, reiterations um, in the present, but also um, current, there's a there's a law between, before the Indian Parliament at present, the Transgender um, Persons Protection of Rights Bill, which is, um, it's still not clear the final version that will be passed, but uh, it's heavily opposed by the Hijra community and trans-identified people in India um, for a number of reasons, including the ways that it polices the transgender category. In Some of those ways are very um, reminiscent of the stuff that I talk about when I talk about illegible bodies and classification. So this certainly continues on. In terms of what I'm working on now, um, just really briefly, that my... I've been mentioning the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, part two of which was policing the Hitra community. I'm currently looking at the groups that were classified under the first part of that act, so-called criminal tribes, um, who were socially marginalised groups. They, Many of them were incredibly low caste or considered untouchable or Dalit. Some of them were um, mobile communities um, and people who were considered sort of peripheral to sedentary rural society. And what I'm interested in there um, is to think about how familial relationships were a site of contestation between these criminalised communities and not only the colonial state, but also missionaries who become involved in the Criminal Tribes Project, also um, Indian socio-religious groups like the Adya Samaj that also become involved in their policing. And I'm interested, I mean, I began this research just as a sort of tangent from the book to understand how does gender work in this first part of the act, right? I needed to understand the relationship between the Hydra Project and the Criminal Tribes Project that were put together in this law. But actually, I found that family was so central to that Criminal Tribes Project and that it tells us a lot about the history of the family. And it has not been analysed in a gendered way. It hasn't been analysed in terms of the history of the family. So at the moment, I'm thinking about a second book, which I have provisionally titled Colonising the Subaltern Family, which would look at um, the family histories of of marginalised and criminalised groups, um, which were incredibly diverse in colonial um, India. This is very early stages, though. I have an article on this coming (laughs) out in Modern Asian Studies, um, probably early next year. Um, But yes, that's that's where I see myself going at the moment. That's uh, great. And the family is so, so central to colonialism, just in in general. It's such an important institution of reproduction, of social order, sexual order, gendered order, everything you can think of. So... um, yeah, we'll really we'll be looking up for for that work and for 
um, any future books. The, the title, the provisional title is quite good, I should say. <laughs> it kept occurring to me. I was in the archives a few months ago and it just kept on coming to me. <laughs> I was like, this is what this is about. So, but anyway, we'll see. It, it is early stages. <laughs> well, uh, I say go for it. Um, but uh, so, Jessica, thank you very much for being with us today and for writing this book. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation.